Alright, in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. So we're going to pick up from verse 12. So 1 John chapter 4, verse 12. So if someone can read for us until verse 16, please. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us, and His love has been perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in Him, and He in us, because He has given us of His Spirit. We have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son as Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him, and He is in God. And we have known and believed that love, the love that God has for us, God is love, and he who abides in love abides in God, and God in him. Alright, take a moment to read that once again, and then we'll uh, discuss it together. Alright, <clears throat> what do you guys think? There's a lot of theology. <laughs> True. What stands out for you? Verse 12, uh, where he says, No one has seen God. And then immediately he says, God abides in you if you love one another. Okay. So, what do you take from that? You know, no one has seen God, and then God abides in you. If... If what love has been perfected in us. What happened if Adam and Eve saw God, right? True. They did. So, so this is after, right? So that's something to consider in interpreting this. Mm -hmm. um, Moses. Uh, I was gonna say Moses yeah. saw him or just Moses his voice? And well he saw the back of God as he passed by, mm -hmm. the scripture says. Mm -hmm. But we know that Jacob, when he wrestled with God, what did he name the place wherein he wrestled with God after the, that wrestling match? He didn't, he didn't do too well because he came out with a broken hip, but <laughs> after he, he had this uh, epic wrestling match, what did he name the place? I have seen God raising face of God. Close. So he, he called it Peniel, and, and the scripture... Uh, translates the name for us as soon as the name is mentioned and it says and he named the place Peniel for I have seen God face to face prosopon pros prosopon so that's also something very interesting to consider thinking about that so this was this is actually funny because I meant to talk to you about this today when I saw you <laughs> completely unaware that we're going to be discussing this today. And the, the funny thing is, there's tons of talking about the same thing. 
Okay, before and because I was reading and I said, okay, what happened with Adam and Eve? And you know, I don't know Moses saw him. I saw Moses only hears his voice. Yeah. But so, I guess my question is, what is the nature of God the Father? We know the nature of God the Holy Spirit, God the Son, right? And spirit in, in physical form. Yeah. What is this? What is the nature of God the Father? Well, and I feel like you can't separate them because. Well, that, that's exactly where we have to start, that the nature of God is inseparable because all three persons share the same nature. And in having three persons, the nature isn't divided. It's not as if there are thirds right. passed around. And, and the essence is understood in the same way. God, in His essence, is uncreated, um, intangible, uh, metaphysical. There's, there's nothing... Uh, by which we can physically perceive His nature, His essence. So, I think Bede kind of puts this whole concept in a, a very eloquent way. So let's just take a look at this quote by Bede, and then after these words shed light on this comment, uh, on this um, concept, we'll discuss it. Okay, so he starts out saying, just as we just mentioned, this verse causes a problem when we remember that the Lord promises that those who are pure in heart will see God and tells the saints that, they, that their angels are constantly gazing at the face of God in heaven. Okay, so this is almost the exact opposite of what we mentioned. He says that no one has seen God any time. We mentioned that uh, in the past, um, Adam and Eve... Uh, conversed with God, they even said, we heard your footsteps, they knew where he was, uh, and we mentioned Moses, we mentioned Jacob, um, and here Bede says that even in the scriptures, it's promised that the pure in heart, in heart will what? See will see God. Okay, so he says this is clearly uh, a problem that some people face. And he says the angels are constantly gazing at the face of God in heaven. Also, although this does have to be taken with a grain of salt because we know that the cherubim with six wings uh, with oh, two their cover their, their faces, right? No. Because they cannot bear to, uh, to gaze at the glory of God. Okay, so John repeats this phrase in his gospel where he adds that the only begotten Son has seen the Father and has made Him known to us. Our blessed Father Ambrose expounded this as follows. No one has ever seen God because no one has ever comprehended the fullness of the divinity which dwells in Him, either with His mind or with His eye. For the verb see implies both physical and mental perception. It's therefore clear that here we're not talking about physical sight so much as about mental perception, and our minds are incapable of ever grasping the fullness of God's being. So, he's making a distinction in, in what word? See. Yeah. Right. So, when, when we think about this word, it's not just our physical sight. But to see is to perceive. It's to grasp or even comprehend. And so, who can comprehend the fullness of, of his divinity? Who can really grasp that? Who can wrap his mind around it? No one. Right? Now, was, was God seen? Yes, He manifested Himself through His Christ. And 
in the very beginning, he starts out saying what? In the very beginning of this epistle. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, and which we have looked upon and our hands have handled, concerning the word of life. And he said, this word of life is God himself. Right? The incarnate Logos. So, there's a clear distinction between the physical eyes and the spiritual eyes. And when it comes to that spiritual realm, wherein we can perceive God in His essence, we understand that differently. We understand that concept to, to have its limitations, right? Because we are limited, He is unlimited. Uh, we are bound by the, the physical uh, uh, laws of nature, whereas He is not. Okay? So it's almost like trying to put the ocean in a cup. Just as you cannot put the ocean in a cup, you cannot perceive the divinity and, and the fullness of His essence. Okay? So that's how we have to understand the very first words in this little passage. No one has seen God at any time. No one has ever fully grasped the fullness of His essence. No creature has, has fully wrapped their mind around it. Not the, the holiest of saints. Have, have done this because he says no one he didn't say no one except the saints <laughs> he didn't say no one except Saint Mary no one has seen God at any time as if no one has fully perceived the fullness of his essence does that make sense? so we're going to see God after in heaven? real God? we will but we will never fully um, wrap our mind around God because God is infinite and even whenever we pass from this light to the next, we'll, we'll never circumscribe God in us. Because God, is, God remains uncontainable. Does that make sense? Yeah, we see Jesus, but God... Well, we, even Christ in His essence, because we cannot differentiate between the essence of the Father and the Son and the Spirit. So we're talking about the essence, the Godhead. We're talking about the divinity of God. And in that case, there is no distinction between the Father, Son, or Spirit when we're talking about that. Because it's, we understand God as one in essence, with the three persons sharing the same. Does that make sense? And, and the essence of God is uncontainable. That's by definition who God is. So, regardless whether we're in this life or the next when will we ever be able to contain God? Never. So we grow in, in understanding and, and, and uniting with Him. But we never circumscribe Him in our minds. Okay? And, and that really does draw the distinction be, between our created being and His uncreated being. It reminds us of our... Uh, our mortality, that, that we are creatures, that no matter what, we are the creatures and He is the Creator. No matter how close we get to Him, no matter how much we resemble Him uh, and, and become like Him, uh, we, we will never circumscribe Him in us. You look like you... Yeah. yeah. About the... Um 
the placement of the verse in the flow. Like, so St. John, the verse before, he says, if God so loved us, we should love one another. Yes. And then after that, he says, if we love one another, God abides in us and his love has been perfected in us. But then in between sandwiches, no one has seen God at any time. <laughs> right. And, and, and that's why he wants to emphasize the, the, the product or the result of our love. That even though no one has seen God at any time, even though no one can circumscribe his essence in his mind, in as much as love is revealed, a glimpse of his divinity, a glimpse of his essence is revealed to us. So it's almost like saying that this love is of divine origin. And even though we cannot perceive him, we can experience his love. And, and what, what it does is identifies love with his essence. That's why it kind of like throws that theological statement in there. Like love one another and, and as much as you love, God abides in you. Even though no one has seen God at any time. So how, how much more amazing is that? To understand his love as a manifestation of who he is, as, as the expression of, of his divinity. Um, whenever Christ revealed his love to us, he revealed to us who he is, what, what his essence is all about. So in as much as we love each other, we have his divinity working in us. Does that make sense? Any other comments on there? Yeah. Um, so it sort of reminds me of when Philip asked Christ to show them the Father as a sort of along the same lines. Yes. Yes. Exactly. So they, the three persons share the same essence. And what, what Christ is doing when he answers Philip in that way is that he wants to reveal the, the distinction of each person because it's the Son who reveals the Father and it's the Spirit who reveals the Son and so uh, we, we see that the Trinity is like always pointing to each other there's this divine humility that exists uh, this divine unselfishness and so each person is pointing to the other we just celebrated the Feast of Epiphany a couple of days ago, and in no place is this concept found more clearly. Because we see Christ baptized, and what's the Father doing? He says, this is my beloved Son, pointing, like, this is the one. <laughs> and then we see the dove resting upon him, and he is pointing at Christ. Revealing Christ. What's the, the, the purpose of uh, Christ's work is to reveal the Father, right? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So we see that each person is in a very beautiful way pointing to the other. So there is this divine humility, this divine fellowship, this divine love that is intrinsic to God. It's not something that God learns. 
It is something that is actually a manifestation of his being. We learn to love and, and we grow in love even though it's wired in us. But that's something that is created in us. He is in an uncreated way exists as love. Does that make sense? So what we actually see manifested in the epiphany is his love. As we see his nature manifested, we see his love manifested. And so that's, that's how we experience it. It says God abides in us and his love has been perfected in us. And if we love by this, we know that, he abide, that, that we abide in him and he in us. And, and again, there's, like Jack said from the very first thing, there's a lot of theology here because the very next thing he says, because he has given us of his spirit. So what reveals to us the love of Christ? The work of the spirit, right? St. Paul says very clearly, no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the spirit. Because what's the spirit doing? Declaring who Christ is, revealing who Christ is, and leading us to His work, filling us, just as Christ was led into the wilderness to fast and pray. If we are like Christ, we are led by the Spirit. We are so filled by the Spirit that our movements are a product of His work in us. And love is the work of the Spirit. So that's why He says, if we're going to love, it's because He's given us of His Spirit. There's no other way. Because it's not the work of a mortal to love like God. Divine love is the work of the divine. So if you're going to love like God, you're not going to do so by your mortal strength. You're not going to do so by your limitations. And that's how the saints reached that level of love. Because it was simply the work of the Spirit in them. And as much as we make room for the Spirit to work in us, the Spirit guides us to the love of Christ to the point of laying down our life on the cross, the same way Christ did. Right, any other thoughts there? We kind of get a glimpse back a few verses about the confession of Christ, just as we see in chapter 4, verse 2. He says here, in, in verse 15, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. So again, that, that confession is just not a verbal statement, as, as we said whenever we discussed verse 2. The, the confession is your life has to be a confession. Your life has to be like a walking gospel. A walking sermon. Confessing that love. And, and he repeats those same three profound words that we saw in verse 8. God is love. He repeats that in verse 16. And we have known and believed the love, of, the love that God has for us. God is love. And he who abides in love abides in God and God in him. And again, we see that mutual indwelling. Right? It's not just God abides in me, okay, good enough. It's not just I abide in God, okay, good enough. No. God in me and I abide in God. And there's this mutual synergy, this cooperation. 
and it's just like marriage. It's like a, a, a beautiful unity. Uh, everything is in harmony. It's not just God controlling me or me trying to do things on my own. But I am cooperating with the work of His Spirit. As His Spirit guides me, He dwells in me, and as I surrender to Him, I abide in Him. So that's the Orthodox way of life, synergy. Alright, any other comments or questions before we uh, move on to the next couple of verses? Alright, so let's just read verse 17 and 18 because these two verses are jam-packed. There, there's a very big concept that is going to require some time in just these two verses. Well, you know what? Read, read 17, 18, and 19. We'll read these three together. That'll be plenty. Anybody go for it. Love has perfected among us in the love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves torment, but he who fears has not been made perfect in love. We love him because he first loved us. Alright, take a moment to, to read that very carefully, okay, read that to yourself very carefully and then we'll discuss it. So, I'm going to personally have to practice some restraint here because this is a very passionate topic for me when it comes to fear and love. So, this has a very special place in my heart. So, I'm, I'm going to try to not get too carried away. But, <laughs> <Let's see>. <laughs> <laughs> no, no promises. So, what can we say about all this talk about love and fear? Is it, I think it was saying that said, I no longer fear God because I love God? Very good. Right. I no longer fear God because I love Him. So is it, you know, you start out your relationship with God as in, I shouldn't be doing this because I'm scared of why, or, you know, uh, scared of the consequences. But as okay. you evolve in your spiritual life and your spiritual maturity, you come to a level where, like, you know what? It's not that you don't fear God as much as you fear disappointing God because you love Him so much. Very good. So, we, we, we know that it is a command to fear God, right? It is no question, are, are we commanded to fear Him? Yes. Yes, absolutely. It says, I'm just going to mention a couple of very quick verses here. 
The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. This is in Proverbs 1, 7, 9, 10, and Psalms. It's all over the scriptures. Okay? And in the wisdom of Sirach, he even says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of his love. And faith is the beginning of cleaving unto him. So there's no question about it that we are commanded to fear God. Now, John says, perfect love casts out fear. So, I think here's where people get a little tripped up. Are we called to set aside fear, and as we grow in love, we decrease the fear of the Lord? I think that fear is still there, just how you perceive your relationship with fear. Okay, very good. We're going to need to make a very important distinction, but I first want you to be convinced that fear is an, an integral virtue that must abide in every Christian throughout every step of his walk with Christ. And, and I call it a virtue because this is, this is something that, that is, is a work of the Spirit in us. It's, the fruit of, it's a fruit of the Spirit. Like the fear of the Lord is something we should have and even grow in. And without even looking at any of the fathers or any of the teachings of the patristics, I'm going to go straight to Christ and we're going to look at where this is found in Christ. So we know that Christ is the model of perfect love, right? In Him is love perfected. Like in Him is the model. Okay? So, listen to what the scripture says about him when it comes to this virtue. So, in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1 to 3, he says, There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. So, this rod... And, and this branch is Christ himself, right? The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might. And what's he say next? The spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. His delight is in the fear of the Lord. And this is what is said about Christ himself, that upon Christ rested the spirit of the fear of the Lord. And his delight is in the fear of the Lord. So that's, that's a pretty bold statement. Like, this is, this is something that we accept as theology. This is our understanding of who Christ is. Someone who is filled by the spirit and is, is led by the spirit of the fear of the Lord and his delight is in the fear of the Lord. And when St. Paul understood Christology and wrote about it in Hebrews, he says the same thing. In Hebrews 5, 7, he said, Who, in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears, to him who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear. Okay, so we see in Christ, the fear of the Lord, we see in Christ, godly fear. 
So that's very important for us to keep in mind. So for starters, we have to accept godly fear, the fear of the Lord, as a virtue, as something that is found in Christ. And if we are to be like Christ, we have to have this sort of fear. And so whenever St. John says, Love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as He is, so we are in this world. There is no fear in love. He must be speaking of something a little bit different. Because if there is no fear in love, and we know in Christ is the fullness of love, but there is also fear, there must be something more to it. Because in Christ is love, but we see in Christ also is the fear of the Lord. Does that make sense? Well, yeah, and also the calls it, or says fear involves torment. So clearly perfect love here, there is no torment hmm. in this kind of fear. It hmm. can't be because this is perfect. Very good. Okay, so now what we want to do is this. We want to make a clear distinction. And everybody always references St. Anthony's sayings when it comes to this topic, and I'm going to go straight to St. Anthony, and we're, we're going to mention what's always left out when it comes to quoting St. Anthony. So, in saying number 32 of St. Anthony's saying, he says, I no longer fear God, but I love Him, for love casts out fear. Okay, that's saying 32. Now, in saying 33, the very next saying, which we never really talk about, he says this, He also said, Always have the fear of God before your eyes. Remember Him who gives life and death. And he continues on. So, he says, I, I no longer fear God, but I love Him for love casts out fear. And then, in the very next thing, he says, Always have the fear of God before your eyes. Okay, so what's the distinction? The distinction is this. There are two types of fear. Okay, there are two types of fear. So let's let's take a look at the first one. First one is like the sort of initial fear. Okay, this is the sort of fear that starts at the the beginning of our spiritual walk. Okay, this is the the fear of the Almighty who is a consuming fire. Okay, St. Diodocus of Fotiki says, No one can love God consciously in his heart unless he has first feared him with all his heart. And without this first fear, I cannot love him. Because if I am not afraid of stepping out of line, I'm not going to stay on track. I'm not going to learn what it means to follow him and obey him commandments and I'm not going to enjoy staying within the flock okay if if the sheep is not afraid of being devoured when it steps outside of the parameters it's not going to stay within the flock and really enjoy the the care of the shepherd because early the shepherd um, cannot really teach the sheep something that it can grasp so, in, in the very first phase, the, it's enough for the, 
for the sheep to just know I need to be on track. And if I'm on track, if I'm afraid of stepping out of line, then I will stay within the pasture and I will enjoy the care of the shepherd. Okay? St. John Climacus also said the same thing. The growth of fear is the starting point of love. And, and truly, once we are afraid of, of God as a consuming fire, I mean, this is the sort of fear that the deacon says in the liturgy, he says, worship God in fear and trembling. trembling. I mean, fear and trembling. Like, it's not just, oh God, I honor you. It's not just reverence. It's trembling before a consuming fire. And when I recognize him as a consuming fire, I don't dare step out of line. And trust me, once you have that mindset, you really do learn to follow His commandments and stay on track and really experience the benefits of staying on track. Because it's not until you enjoy those benefits that you truly fall in love with Him. If you're constantly stepping off track and getting injured, you don't really learn to appreciate His, his care and His love. And so the more you stay on track, the more you appreciate what He has done for you because you're now uh, uh, able to experience it. Does that make sense? Yeah. That's the first one. Now, the first one, uh, the second one is this. It's the one that endures forever. Psalm 99 says, The fear of the Lord endures forever. And Psalm 118, uh, 100, 118 verse 4 says, let those who fear the Lord now say His love endures forever. Now this is a sort of different fear. Um, as the sheep grows, he doesn't really um, care that there are uh, harmful things outside the pasture. As the sheep grows, all that matters to him is enjoying the care of his shepherd. So, the, the same way a child grows, um, the, the mom just tells him, um, if you go run around in the street, you might get hurt because there's cars driving by. But as he grows, he learns to just enjoy being in the backyard, being inside the house, because uh, his mom is just uh, able to care for him, and, and he really experiences that love. And... He's not avoiding the street because he's afraid of the street. He's avoiding the street because he loves the house. He avoids the street because the love becomes his, uh, his driver. The love becomes the, the main motivator for his actions. Okay? And so that fear and trembling begin to subside. And that's the, the, the type of fear that should eventually disappear. But this second sort of fear, the fear that the scripture clearly tells us endures forever, is the sort of fear that Jack alluded to, that I, I fear offending God, that I fear living without Him, that I love Him so much, that the thought of Offending him, the thought of separating from him, the, the thought of leaving him kills me, torments me. And uh, th that's what continues to drive the righteous. 
it's that fear. And if you, if you don't have that first sort of fear that sparks your, your, your walk with Christ, you don't really learn to stay on track. And the second sort of fear that comes from the intensity of your love never really cultivates in your heart. The second sort of fear it doesn't really um, move you the same way because it's a, really a product of love. It's, it's the same way a, a husband would fear offending his wife. Not because he's afraid of what his wife will do, even though he might sleep on the couch if he does something wrong, but it's because he loves his wife so much he doesn't want to offend his wife. You love God so much, you really are afraid of offending him. Okay, and that's, that's now just love that remains. St. Augustine illustrates this in a very beautiful way. He says, fear and love can be understood as needle and thread. Okay, so let's say you're trying to stitch something. You have a, a, a cloth that ripped and you're trying to stitch it together. He says that you would take the needle and you would hook it, um, hook the, the, the thread to the needle and then you would begin to stitch. First, insert the needle and then you go through and then after you're done going through several times the the thread is fixed into the cloth so he illustrated this to to say that the needle symbolizes fear and the thread symbolizes love so what first has to enter into the cloth is the needle but what remains in the cloth is what? The thread. And unless the needle penetrates through the cloth, the thread will not ever be fixed there appropriately. And bringing this to a practical application for our life is, I wholeheartedly believe a lot of us are taught to just love God without really properly having the fear of the Lord. Especially um, as, as our kids grow up. Especially like children nowadays that I see growing up in the church, they just hear, um, God is, is loving and He's going to forgive you and God cares about you and all of those things are very true. But do they have a complete understanding of God. Really un do, they really, do they really fear offending God? Um, do they understand that God is the Almighty? That God is a consuming fire? Because at, at that phase, in that age, the emotion of love isn't fixed. Love becomes uh, uh, an emotion that comes and goes whenever you're just a child. So what's going to keep them on track? What's going to uh, really move them to experience that relationship with God if they never um, understand that, that He is the Almighty, He is the Creator? Does that make sense? Let's look at um, 
Saint Theodorus's thoughts on this too. It says, fear also comes into the argument. For the greater our longing for God, the greater grows our fear. And the more we hope to attain God, the more we fear Him. If we are wounded by divine love, the sting of fear exceeds that of a thousand threats of punishment. For as nothing is more blessed than to attain God, so nothing is more terrible than this great fear of losing Him. Okay? So that's a beautiful way to just sum it up. Nothing is more fearful than losing God. So in that sense, there's got to be a mutual relationship and the growth of love and fear in our hearts. But not that sort of fear that involves torment. Not the sort of fear that thinks God is um, out there to punish us. Does that make sense? Which is what the old generation more... Yeah. They, like for example, us, we were 10 years old and with the confession and then we said we lied. But we saw it okay. <laughs> ten, and the priest was asked 10 times, up and down, we finish. Then we cannot say more after that. So, so that should be the foundation, but they need to progress into what it means to really love Him and then shift from the first sort of fear that we talked about to the second sort of fear, which is this. Like when someone has a group of friends and um, uh, let's say uh, it's a boy studying for an exam and his friends tell him, hey, we're going to go out to eat or we're going to go see a movie or we're going to go hang out at the spot and he's got to study for the exam. But if he has like this sort of, uh, what, what everyone calls it, FOMO, like fear of missing out, then anytime his friends are doing something without him, he's like panicking, like, oh, the, I'll have to study and they're going out having fun. Like, he, he's afraid of missing out on the fun that they're doing. And that sort of tension is, breaks him down. It, it, it's, it's what really works in his heart. Maybe he'll uh, finish studying quickly, maybe he'll do his chores, whatever he needs to do so that he doesn't miss out on whatever his friends are doing. So for us, we got to have this FOMO. we got to have this fear of missing out, but fear of missing out on God. Fear of missing out on eternity with Him. That we're so fearful of missing out that uh, our love for Him increases that fear of losing Him and it continues to drive us. We, we fear missing out on experiencing Him in prayer. We fear missing out on experiencing Him in reading the scriptures. We fear of missing out on experiencing Him in the service, whatever it is. We fear offending Him. We fear lying or cheating because we know that's what's going to separate us from Him because, the, because of the intensity of our love for Him. I think today, We've got it reversed than the old school generation where everything was like Baba Yazal and and you know God is gonna be upset with you and now we're just saying it's okay if you do this, God still loves you, it's okay if you do that, like you know, just give him a pat on the back, God still loves you, and the kids never really learn to fear God. And then 
nowadays, kids even say foul things in the presence of a priest, or things in church happen that would never happen, like kids are running around through church and uh, like throwing the books around, never really respecting what the church is and knowing that this is the house of the Lord and we're, we're in the presence of the Eucharist, which is uh, a consuming fire. You know, what, is I the, think, what is the perfect age for the kids to behave that way? So, so there's got to be a balance. There's got to be a balance as we uh, continue to teach kids from day one. We, we teach them the love of God, but we don't neglect the, the full picture that God is the creator, that God is the, the Almighty, that He is a consuming fire. All these things should put the child in his place, like to understand like God is big, He's bigger than me. And when He's at church, He's got to understand that He's in the presence of something bigger than Him. I think that it really is important, and that doesn't put the child in a depressive state. No. That doesn't uh, make the child um, lose confidence, but what it does, whenever it's presented in the full picture, it's keep the child on track. And as he grows on track, he learns to love God because he's got the fullness of that experience. He doesn't have anything to... Uh, probe him back on track every time he thinks about stepping off, then he's going to continue to stray. He never really learns to love God because he never enjoyed that real experience of, of staying within the pasture. So I, I think it's got to start from day one. Alright, so I can't help but mention something else as well. I, I know a lot of us come across this question uh, about... God's wrath and how He is a like consuming fire and always presented in the Old Testament as like this dark cloud. And a lot of people ask, well, why is God presented in that way? He is love, right? I'm, I'm sure if you give any group like a question-answer session, like that's one of the questions that almost always pops up. That and like what's God's will for me in my life? Those are like most popular questions. But so looking back at this, it makes perfect sense as we understand fear and love, right? So we said we start out with that fear and trembling, right? So when God wanted to introduce himself to humanity, how did he introduce himself? Did he just say, hey guys, I'm just like the nice God that loves and forgives? Now, of course, he did do that. The most frequent definition of God in the Old Testament is the Lord God uh, is, is good and, and merciful and slow to anger. And, and that Phrase is repeated several times, but we see him introducing himself as the God that, that thunders in, in the dark cloud, that uh, Moses goes up to see, and whoever touches the mountain like drops dead, and everybody's afraid because God knows that in our frail nature, 
if we just understand Him to be a loving God only, we could take that love for granted. And, and His love becomes more meaningful to us whenever we understand that the one who died for me is the one who could have destroyed me. But if I don't think that the one who died for me like, had any sort of power over me, then I don't really see his love as magnificent as it really was. I'll give you a very quick little example. I'm not going to take long because of time, but imagine that I'm just sitting here and uh, let, let's say Luke, for example, comes and he gets like a cup of water and, um, and he throws it in my face, right? And I say, all right. Um, I'm going to forgive you uh, because I really love you, okay? Now, imagine like this big like NFL football player, um, maybe Garrett, for example, comes in and he throws a water in my face and a, a big, he throws a cup of water in my face and I say, all right, I'm just going to forgive you because I'm, I'm a nice guy, okay? So... You might question whether I really forgive the person in the second example because you don't really know if I have any power over him. I might just be scared. I might be incompetent. But in the first example, like I could just kick Luke right over <laughs> if I wanted to, which I would never do, but for the second example, you know that I really do love him and forgive him because I can just kick him right over if I wanted to. And so that's love that is proven because you know how much bigger I am than Luke. You're just a little kid. But if this big, like 350 pound muscle guy comes, yeah, if a big shack comes over and dumps a bucket of water on me, and I say, I'm just going to forgive you because I'm a really nice guy. Everyone's <laughs> like, like, you're forgiving him because you have no choice. Because if you try to start something, it's not going to go well. Okay? And so I think that same concept applies to us. So that's what I want to walk away with. For us to understand that if we do not, un if we don't recognize that he is a consuming fire, if we don't understand that he is the great almighty, who has the power to destroy us, then the, the act of love on the cross is reduced. But if I put the cross in the context of His greatness and power that He who died for me could have just destroyed me, that means so much more. You know? If Luke had the, the mind to understand that uh, I, I could have hurt him for what he did, then he'll appreciate my forgiveness and my love a lot more. Right? So, that's something to keep in mind. Uh, I wanted to just share that to drive this point home.
any um, comments or questions on that. Alright, so if we if we take a look at the the very first couple of words in that little passage, in verse 17 he says, Love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment. Now, we spoke about the relationship of fear and love that come after that verse, but I think it's a little easier to understand what he says in verse 17 after taking a look at this whole concept. So, so now we, we can look at that, that confidence in a different light. Um, what's, what's the indication that love has been perfected among us? What's he saying here in verse 17? Love has been perfected among us in this, that we what? The boldness in the day we may have boldness, okay? Why would we have boldness in the day of judgment? Because of Christ. Because of Christ. That's it. In, in, in what He has done for us. And so, if we really apply the concept of what we just spoke about, of staying on track, having the fear of the Lord that endures forever, and growing in love, now, we're, we're not dealing with the fear that involves torment. Now we're growing in that purity of love uh, and, and, and the, the real fear of the Lord. You know, the words, do not fear, are the most repeated words in the New Testament. And this is the most repeated instruction or commandment in the New Testament. No commandment is repeated more than do not fear. That's got to, that goes to tell you something. That Christ came, just as we celebrated yesterday the feast of the wedding of Cana of Galilee, to, to give us wine. He came to give us joy. He came not for us to live in fear. I mean, if, if anybody has any sort of understanding of the culture and the Old Testament, it's that wine is a symbol of joy. And trust me, Nobody in that culture missed the implications of this miracle. It's, it's not for us to get drunk, it's for us to understand that He is the, the true wine. He is the joy that came to, to fill our life. And so, He doesn't want us to live in fear, He wants us to have boldness. He wants us to grow in love to the, to the degree that love moves us to have confidence in His work in our life. And so on the Day of Judgment, we, we will have confidence in what He has done for us. And that's objective. That does not depend on what, um, what I think. His love is an objective reality. So I'm, I have boldness in something that He has revealed, that He has loved all equally. In that while we are sinners, He died for us. Alright. 
So now the the closing remarks here. In, in this little section, we love him. Why? Because he first loved us. How beautiful is that? We love him because he first loved us. What do you take from that? His love is independent of how we feel about him. Very good. His love is not predicated on our love. He first loved us, and St. Paul says, while we were sinners, He still died for us. Not while we became righteous and earned His sacrifice. And so, what is it that ought to produce our love for Him? Fear. Okay, and so... As I grow in that, what do I recognize in Him? His love towards me. His love towards me. So, we love Him, why? Because He first loved us. Now, if you don't know that He loved you, what reason do you have to love Him? I mean, St. John is making it very, very simple. If you understand the extent of His love for you, you have all the reasons of the, in the world to love Him back. It's, it's clearly expressed as a response. Here, our love is a response to His love. And it's, it's something that He started first. It's like, when you get into the fight, you say, well, He started it, or He hit me first. It's like, if you're talking about who loved who first, like, you would say, well, you started it. <laughs> you're the one who loved me first. You're the one who created me knowing that it would cost your life on the cross because you knew I would transgress the law. So is it fair to say that our love is predicated on His, meaning that if we feel that He doesn't love us in any way, we feel resentment towards Him, which is not the case. Sure. But it's... Sure. I, I true, truly believe that our love is lacking greatly due to our incapability to understand His love fully and honestly. Because I, I don't blame you if you don't recognize His love for you. Um, if no one has revealed His love to you, how do you know to love Him back? Now, that, that's clearly a cop-out for us because we all know. But I mean, there are some people in the world who don't. Some people that, you know, grew up in terrible circumstances and never really even heard of who Jesus was. A lot of people pray, like, think of His love based on the situation that they're in, right? Yeah. I know He loves me because I have this. I know yes. God says, I feel like God doesn't love me because I don't have that. Right. Because I think they're equating God's love to human love, right? Because that's, right. when somebody loves you, they give you stuff. When you don't, you don't, right? So they equate God's love 
to heal mm. love, which is obviously Perfectly. not the case. And sometimes you feel Perfectly the same. opposite. If you didn't get what you it needed, it's like God that doesn't love me. Right, right. Yes, it's like yes. And, and so his love is almost like increasing or decreasing uh, for different people, it, it changes and we misconstrue his love because we see love as we experience it here and sometimes we ascribe that to God which is the worst thing we can do. But what can we do in this situation? Something people like to stay like long time to, to be away from God because he's like God, he doesn't love me. And I have this problem because he doesn't love me. To stay for that. What's a, what you tell them or what you can do for them? So, a lot of people struggle with that. And, and a lot of people don't have the desire and don't even know where to start. But what the fathers have taught us, that nothing can spark your desire for God and nothing can spark your love for Him more than meditation on His love as what Christ has done for humanity and looking at that in a personal way. There's nothing more powerful than looking at the, the love that was given to me personally through His incarnation, through His interactions with everyone while he was here on earth and through his life-giving death on the cross. So when I meditate on that, I find myself as the object of his love. I find myself as the purpose for his incarnation. I find myself as the reason for his death on the cross. So it becomes personal. And if Christology is not personal, it's meaningless. If I don't study and meditate on what He has done to me personally, I don't have a reason to love Him. If I'm just picking apart all the situations that happen in my life, and God's not doing this, or God is doing that, God is causing this, and why do I have a lot of frustrating people to deal with at work, or... Why am I struggling with uh, this back pain? Or why am I struggling with this disease? Or why am I uh, struggling with my finances? I could, I mean, the list goes on and on. But nothing is more certain than the cross. And I, I don't think it's a cop-out answer because a lot of people might hear that and say, well, you're... You're ignoring all the struggles that people go through. I'm not. Because we deservingly have the struggles that are in the world. What was deserving for God in the incarnation, in the limitations that He endured, the hunger, the, the pain, the suffering, and the death that He did for me. So I say, Simon says, on the cross, the, 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 the Son justified the Father to man. So on the cross, the Father said, Okay, look at the worst of the worst that my Son endured. What else can any man can complain about? Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. 
and and the the transition or the shift from his his glory to the shame and the humiliation of being crucified naked is the most terrible crime that can can uh, be inflicted on God. So that's something for us to keep in mind. So share with you um, a meditation on this relationship between his love for us and our response of love to him um, in St. Augustine's words. Um, before I just mention this quote, I'll give you the context of this whole passage because it's, it's a very long passage that, uh, that he writes and I didn't want to just throw the whole thing up there. Um, before he mentions these words that I'm going to show you, he was talking about the, the relationship that a husband uh, may have with uh, a wife um, or vice versa if, if a wife uh, is having a relationship with her husband and they love one another a lot of times someone may see the beauty in their spouse but what is attractive to, to you in your spouse can never change your appearance. So if you find that your wife has beautiful eyes or uh, she has a beautiful smile, no matter how lovely she is, that beauty is never translated to you. You cannot change your form or your appearance, even though they're in love, right? So he's saying that this physical nature can never change when it comes to a relationship, even if it is fixed in love. And so he's now translating this concept from the physical um, um, concept to the spiritual concept and how love, even though it may not affect each other's physical appearance, it affects the appearance of the soul. Okay, so take a look at what he says and it'll make a little more sense. Our soul, my brethren, is unlovely by reason of iniquity. So because of our sins, our soul is, is dark and ugly. Okay? Yet, by loving God, it becomes lovely. What a love must that be that makes the lover beautiful? But God's always lovely, never unlovely, never changeable. He who was always lovely first loved us. And what were we when he loved us but foul and unlovely? Okay, you see what he's saying here? So he still loved us even though within our soul there was nothing lovely in us. But ironically, his love is what is translated to us. Okay, nevertheless, he loved us not to leave us foul, no, but to change us and to transform us from unlovely to lovely. So how shall we become lovely? By loving Him who is always lovely. As, as the love increases in you, so the loveliness increases. For love is itself the beauty of the soul. Love is the beauty of the soul. Let us love because He first loved us. So he says this is the irony here is that no matter what happens 
with the love that's shared between a couple, it will never change your physical appearance. But the soul becomes radiant with love and it becomes lovely. The more it loves, it becomes beautiful, the more it loves. And the only way it becomes beautiful, it becomes lovely, when it communicates with the one who loved us. When it communicates with love himself. When it has a relationship with the lover. And, and that loveliness that comes from him is translated to us. And that's what transforms us. So he loved the unlovable to make it lovely. So that we can do the same thing to others, the same way that he loved us and made us who are unlovely, lovely. We can love the unlovable, the, the worst of the worst, even our enemies, the ones who have no love, and transform their souls to, to loving souls. To, to, to change even the form of their soul. If we can say such a thing, because the soul is formless, but we, we, we can give it more beauty. Because that love radiates. And it transforms. He says, By God's grace, we love Him who first loved us in order to be loved by Him. And by loving Him, we perform good works, but we have not performed the good works in order to love Him. Okay, so no matter what, what we do, it's not the works that warranted His love. And that's what Jack uh, mentioned earlier. It, it was a love given to us, not predicated on our works. But now that we realize we have been loved, we're moved to do the same thing. And I'm telling you, the, the, the ones who have, who have little love are the ones who meditated little on His love. The ones who have not grown in love with Him are the ones that have not grown in meditating on His love for them. So that's what builds our desire for God more than anything else. So, so when you read the scriptures, everything that Christ does, every loving act, find yourself as the object of that act. Whenever you're looking, reading through the gospel accounts, when he heals any person, plug yourself into that person. When when he raises the 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 paralytic and gives him strength to his legs, put yourself as the paralytic. He came to give you strength in your legs. Whenever he gives the blind man eyes, he came to illuminate your eyes. Whenever he raised Lazarus from the dead, even though he was corrupted and there was a stench coming from the tomb, it was me who was raised. So, I always plug myself as the object of His love. Once that becomes a reality for me and I continue to meditate on that, my love for Him will grow. That fire will increase. Any comments or questions? Alright. Let's stand to prayer.